1 Corinthians 10, I'll be reading the first uh, section there, the first half of that verse, verses 1 to 13. But before we hear from the Lord, from His Word, let's go to Him in prayer and ask His blessing upon the reading and the hearing and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Our dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, oh, how we love Your law. May it be our indeed meditation all day long. Blessed are you, Lord, our gracious Father, O Lord, whose love is revealed in your Son, whose love is the delight of all life, and whose word we love as the light of life. We ask, Father, that you would pour your Spirit out now as we hear that word, Lord, and as we hear from you, that in meditating upon that word our hearts may be illumined, and our days filled with peace and joy. As a result, Lord, we pray, place that word in our minds that we might think rightly. Lord, place it in our hearts that we may learn to love in new ways, in true ways. We pray, Father, place that word in our, uh, touch our wills by it, Lord, that we may submit our wills to your perfect will, that we would repent of our failure to do so. And we do praise you, Heavenly Father, that you cleanse out from us all that is unclean and befouling to us. And so we ask now, Lord, we come to you, and we ask, speak for your servants are listening. We pray this all through Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1, please give your full attention now. This is the word of our God. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. And therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord endures forever. May he add his blessing to the reading. Well, whether a person is raised in a Christian home or knows nothing of Christ until later in life, there are always challenges that one undergoes with compromise and with uh, contentment and commitments in that Christian walk. 
Uh, Believers in Jesus Christ will always, until glory, have to wrestle with decisions that we make related to what we do in this foreign land in which we are pilgrims. And the reason is that we belong to a different age. We belong to a different age. Christians do not belong to this age, but to the age to come. This has been underlying in the push uh, of of Paul's uh, letter here from the very first uh, chapter. And the problems going on in Corinth were important issues, the things that they were up against. The questions that they were facing were significant questions. Is it okay for a person to claim Christ and to be a part of the local church and then go and partake of pagan ceremonies out in the culture uh, that were all around them? at other times in their lives. Just how does a Christian deal with these practices, these pagan practices going on all around them? And is there something that today that we too, we can learn from the time of Israel in the wilderness? Remember that time, the wilderness wandering uh, Israelites where the Lord, Yahweh, was visibly with them, leading them and protecting them them and providing for them, providing for them with his word and the means of grace. What can we learn from that time when they complained and they grumbled when the Lord prohibited them from partaking in pagan practices? How are these things examples to us? Well, this is an exciting uh, chapter, as indeed all chapters in scripture can and should be to us. It's an exciting thing that we can learn here from the Lord as we look at chapter 10, as we've come to uh, this portion of our series through Paul's letter. Uh, And this chapter, indeed, is the core of what Paul has been saying about idolatry. It began in in chapter 8, and this is kind of the core, right? Remember in chapters 8 and 9, Paul talked about how Christian liberty affects others. And then here in chapter 10, he addresses how liberty affects our own lives, our own lives. And as Paul does very often, as we've seen in our time together in the past number of years, uh, Paul very often in his letters, when he wants to explain something or support something that he's doing, support his teaching, he brings illustrations from the history of redemption. He reaches back the history of God's people to make his point. Why does he do this? Because Paul knows, and he wants us to know that we are part of that history. He's bringing us into that history. Because indeed it is our history as we belong to the people of God. Or part of the people of God. And that illustration is one that shows his point. right? Paul's point here of the, of the damage that results when God's people habitually and continually partake of idolatrous practices. When they turn away from the one true God. And they worship and they serve created things. Even while they claim be believers in that God and followers of that God. Israel indeed encountered innumerable blessings. As you are familiar with the Old Testament and familiar with the history of God's people, they encountered many, many blessings in the Old Testament. These blessings included spiritual baptism, as we read about today, spiritual food and drink, and their covenant God's presence with them. And even so, Even so, they fell into idolatry, which resulted in that generation, what? Failing to acquire the promised land, that promised inheritance. Most of them died 
we read, in the wilderness. Paul is showing the Corinthians, Corinthians the danger of making peace with idolatry, right? which is what they had done, the way one of my friends has put it, making peace with idolatry. What's, Paul, what's Paul's main point there to the Corinthians? It is that they belong to the age to come, and therefore they have no business engaging in pagan practices. And what's the main point for us, even here this morning? It's that you belong to the age to come. And therefore you have no business sinning or flirting with sins, the sins of the world of any kind. And how does Paul make this point in our text? He does so, I don't know if we'll get through it all today, I, I fear that we will probably run out of time, but uh, you have an outline in your bulletin. Paul makes this point in this text by first encouraging confidence that they are connected to the believers of the Old Testament. Right? He encourages confidence that they are connected to them, the people of God, in verses 1 to 4. And then second, he makes his point by issuing a caution against carelessness of their behavior, carelessness of their life. And he gives further examples in verses 5 to 11. And then thirdly, he makes this point by uh, instilling comfort, encourage when faced with temptations. Instilling comfort and courage when faced with temptations in verses 12 to 13. Let's turn now and look first at verses 1 to 4 where we see Paul indeed encouraging confidence for them that they are connected to the old covenant people of God. And we see here when Paul does this, he is certainly giving a warning to the Corinthians. Even throughout, while encouraging confidence, there's a warning that attends it. And that warning is for those who have professed faith in Christ and they were members of the visible church, the warning is they still might come under the judgment of God. I look at verse 1 again where he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And so let's notice a few things to start as we look at this first verse. Again, it's standard for Paul when he wants to introduce something, when he wants to make something known, something important. He tells his readers, I want you to know, right? This is a common refrain of Paul. And so Paul says, I want you to know, brothers. I don't want you to be unaware. <clears throat> and notice what Paul does, right? He tenderly, again, as he has in the past, he refers to them as brothers, right? Even as he warns them, even as he calls them out, even as he is chastising them, he calls them brothers, and then he refers to the Israelites, right? He's referring to this mostly Gentile congregation. He refers to the Israelites as our fathers, right? Our forefathers. <clears throat> and he reminds the Corinthians of that greatest act of redemption in the Old Covenant. That amazing act of God when he led them out of Egyptian captivity through the Red Sea on dry ground. ground. And when Yahweh did this for his people... He led them on dry ground, not only delivering them from bondage, by leading them through visible means, right? The cloud and the pillar of fire. And this great act of redemption, what? It instructs them. It instructs the Corinthians as to how they are to understand their place in redemptive history. Paul's making this connection for them. They've been rescued from the bondage of sin because of the work of Christ. That greatest redemptive, the greater redemptive act. And like Israel, they are to battle against temptation. They are to battle against the temptation to live like their pagan neighbors. And though Paul is going to give them a firm warning, calls them brothers. 
right? Brothers. And he warns them. And he wants them to listen to this warning of God's judgment and wrath. And even though they are largely a general Gentile congregation, again, he says, these are our fathers, right? Israel, they're our fathers. And this is Paul showing the Corinthian church. And we can learn this as well. He's showing that all Christian churches are the true Israel of God. The true Israel of God. The fathers of Israel uh, that Paul refers to, right? The forefathers, they're the forerunners of the church. Right? There are no two peoples of God. There's one people of God. And then it was also the all-inclusiveness of this text as we look at these first four verses. Right? Notice how many times Paul says here the word all. Right? All. Five times he mentions it in these first four verses. That means that all of Israel, all participated, all partook in these blessings of God. Right? These blessings that God had did to them and for them. All of Israel. All these things Paul lays out for us here. And if we, of course, we know that not all who were in the Sinaitic covenant were the elect of God. Right? We know that because we know how the history unfolded. There wasn't a one-to-one correlation between the covenant members and the elect, right? those whom were truly saved. Remember, too, that all the members of that covenant did see and did receive blessings. Yes, even if it was only external and outward, they still received them. We read in Exodus 13 and in Exodus 14 that all of our fathers, all Israel, passed through the cloud when they passed through the sea. And for us, on this side of Christ's fulfilling of the promises and the types and the shadows of the Old Testament, Paul can tell us that it was Jesus Christ himself who led the people through those waters of judgment. And remember as well, from previous studies, praise God that this judgment was a redemptive judgment. Right? He redeems and he judges through this one same act. He redeems his people and he judges the enemies of God. He delivered them safely from their enemies, those who pursued them through those judgment-pouring waters which destroyed Pharaoh's army. And Paul says when that happened, what? He says in verse 2, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul says that when they passed through the sea, all of Israel were baptized into Moses. Right? What does Paul mean there? Do you see what he's saying? We need to understand that Moses represented the people of God before Israel. He was the great mediator of that Sinaitic covenant. He was the mediator of the people of God. And Moses here, as we read in the Old Covenant, in this way, he was a type of Christ. He was a picture of Christ, mediating, standing in for his people. All Israel passed through the sea on dry ground, and all were baptized. And even though this is the case, right? Even though this is the case, what is Paul saying? Paul's point is that even though this happened, they didn't get wet. They were dry. And who got wet? It's Pharaoh's army. The enemies of God. Those who received judgment. Who was fully immersed. Those who were destroyed. Those who were judged. Right? So it's an interesting case. I'll just let that hang out there regarding full immersion and, and other things like that. But even though all Israel, even though they, they, they went under this common baptism into Moses, 
right? They're following that glory spirit cloud through the sea. Paul says that this great act of redemption saved Israel from Pharaoh's hand. But notice, it didn't keep those within Israel who didn't believe the promises from eventually coming under God's judgment. You see that? And then we go on to verses 3 and 4. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And all of Israel, Paul is telling them, were baptized. And they all ate the same spiritual food, manna. And they drank the same spiritual drink. And as we look at this and we see the connections that Paul is making, we see that in some sense this foreshadows the two sacraments ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Israel possessed, as it were, equivalents of these things. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. They drank the same spiritual drink. Right? Water from the rock. Right? We read about this in Exodus 17 earlier. We see another instance of this water from the rock uh, in Numbers chapter 20, verses 2 to 13. We won't read it at this time, perhaps later this Lord's Day. You can spend time looking carefully over those texts. Uh, but that's another instance of the water coming from the rock. And this should have, it should have pointed for them. It should have driven them to that which the water symbolized. Which was what, according to Paul? What does Paul say that that was? It was Jesus Christ. It was Christ, the living water. Right? Again, verse 4. All, they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. He was with them all along. Notice also, it's very interesting how Paul declares, he affirms here, he testifies to Christ's pre-existence by calling him the rock. Right? This is, this is, these are basic things that should be for us, brothers and sisters. As we know and love and learn God's word, and we love and learn and know and increasing in our understanding of what God's word says about God himself, right? our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-eternal, right? Paul uses this term, rock of Christ. It was a term often used by Yahweh, right? Jehovah, the Lord in the Old Testament. Paul declares he uses it of Jesus Christ. The rock was Christ. We can look at another, another, a couple of instances of this uh, from the book of Psalms. Well, I'll just look at Psalm 18. We see Yahweh being referred to as the rock. <clears throat> Psalm 18.2 The Lord, that is Yahweh, is my rock and fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. We'll go down to verse 31. For who is God but Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? Right? And then verse 46. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. Right? The rock. He's of Yahweh. Paul says it's Christ. Praise indeed to our triune God. May we know brothers and sisters, and affirm God's declaration of himself in his word. And may we delight in it. May we grow to delight in who this God is to whom we adore. Paul says, you Corinthians, you Corinthians like Israel of old, 
You have received blessing. You have received protection. You have received leading. You have received rescue. You've been blessed by God. You must believe. You must live as you are, belonging to the age to come, the age of the rock. You are to be encouraged that you are God's people, connected to the one people of God, to them and with them. Paul encourages confidence that they are connected indeed to the one people of God, to the Old Testament believers. They are family. And you, dear Christians, brothers and sisters, you are family too. This is your story. They are your fathers. This is your connection. Paul says this, and he also says in doing so, as he tells them this, our second point, he issues a caution against carelessness in verses 5 to 11. He issues a caution against carelessness. Paul makes his point by issuing this caution. Look at verse 5. Paul tells them what ultimately happened to that generation of Israelites in the wilderness. Those Israelites who traveled through the wilderness. Verse 5, Nevertheless, most of them God was not pleased. With most of them He was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And you will perhaps recall some of those awful and lamentable moments that Paul is describing here. He's referencing here. Numbers 14, for example. You recall men were sent out to spy in the land of Canaan and to report back to what they found. And the people are freaked out when all of them but Joshua and Caleb say things uh, like, yeah, it's a glorious land. In one cluster of grapes, we had to carry on a pole between two people. It's glorious, but the men are like giants. The cities are fortified. They are large and they are strong. We can never defeat them. The land devours its people. They are of great height there. And as a result, the people are freaked out. And it says that they cried and they wept and they grumbled. They grumbled and they rebelled. A faithless and a terrible scenario for sure. Consider later on, as the story unfolds, as history unfolds in Numbers 25, when the people took to themselves daughters of the, the Moabites, right? their pagan neighbors, and they sacrificed to these foreign false gods, and they ate and they bowed down to them in gross idolatry. This, even despite the reality of their possession and their partaking of spiritual baptism and spiritual food and spiritual drink. And during the 40 years, those 40 years in the wilderness, they came under God's curse because of their proclivity and their leaning towards grumbling and idolatry. And it says what? They were overthrown in the wilderness. All except Joshua and Caleb. And in saying this, what is Paul doing? He's telling the Corinthians about this tragic history of the Israelites to whom they are connected. And he's issuing a caution to them about their carelessness and faith, uh, faithlessness. And to heed the warning from this example which was for them to learn. Paul's giving this history. He's giving this warning. He's giving this caution. Because the Corinthians, like the Israelites... Enjoy the same spiritual food and drink. It is Christ in the same signs and seals, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But the Corinthians do so in fullness 
right? In fullness, not in type, in shadow, as the Israelites did, but in fullness. So for the Corinthians to be flirting with and participating in paganism, which some of them were doing, they would come under the same results as the Israelites did. The very judgment of God. Then we see in verse 6, right, and take note of the structure of this text. Uh, in verse 6, Paul unites the example of the Israelites to the Corinthian situation. Right? That the very thing that the congregation was up against. Uh, verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Right? In looking at this structure, you'll see if you look ahead to verse 11, there's again the mention of this example. This took place as an example. Right? These things happened to them as an example. Uh, this is a bracketing, these two uses. Um, verses 6 and 11, they bracket this second point, this section of the text. We won't get to go through all of uh, what's, what's said here. Uh, we'll wrap up in a moment. But just for a second, look at um, what's being said here. Right, This word example in verse 6. Right? This is the word uh, that we get. It's the word in Greek, uh, tupos. Right? It's the word we get type from. This happened as a type for us. Right? The wilderness wandering Israelites grumbled. And the Corinthians were grumbling. The Israelites were grumbling against God. The Corinthians were grumbling against the restriction of Paul regarding their involvement in paganism. Paul says in this regard, that history of the Israelites, what they did, it served as an example, as a tupos, as a type to the Corinthians. It served as a pattern, as a figure, as a form, as an image for them. And a severe warning for them indeed. You belong to another age, Paul's telling them. You belong to the age to come. You have no business in temples. You have no business with paganism. Remember this. Remember what happened. This is true of you. Don't be careless. How could you do these things? Look at what happened to your fathers in the wilderness. Separate with your pagan past. That is no longer who you are, Corinthians. Don't you see? And it is no longer who you are, brothers and sisters. It's no longer who you are. If you're in Christ, what does Paul tell us? A new creation. You're a new creation if you are in Christ. This is no longer who you are. Your past is not your identity. Jesus is your identity. Jesus is your identity. You're united to Jesus. And your life is hidden in His life. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, Colossians tells us. We'll complete this section next time, but for now, I want you to behold the wonder and the glory of what we are being told here from God's Word. Paul says those people of old, they were led by God's presence and power, mightily displayed for them. And they still blew it. They still blew it. Again and again. And it's the same word for us even here this morning, brothers and sisters. Consider the extent of God's love for you. Right? Paul tells them, you Corinthians, don't do the same. Don't blow it like they did. And it's the same for us, brothers and sisters. Consider His love. Consider His love. The extent of His love for His people. Even for you. 
You have the substance of what all of this pointed to. We've been baptized with spiritual baptism. We eat a spiritual food. We drink the spiritual drink every Lord's Day. Have we seen in our lives, have you seen in your life, God's mighty acts? Right? God's great and mighty acts of mercy and wonder. I wonder how you would answer that question. I don't know what could be more mighty and more wonderful than making dead people live, right? What could be more mighty and wonderful than that? Not the sensationalistic nonsense that is so often hawked for miracles and wonders. What is more glorious than giving dead people life? And that's what happened to you if you belong to Him. That's exactly what happened to me and happened to you if you name the name of Christ for yourself. If you've been raised in a covenant home, a faithful Christian home where you never remember a time when you didn't name Christ as your Savior. Oh, praise God. Praise God for His providence and His mercy towards you. But never let that devalue the glory or the might of God's working in your life. And never take that for granted. God makes the dead live. God makes the dead live. And He replaces stony hearts with hearts of flesh. Hearts that live, that beat for Him. Is that a mighty act of God in your life? You better believe it is. You better believe it. God executes His mighty and awesome power when He shatters the chains of sin from your life that bound you. That is a mighty and awesome act of God. He gives life to us and He sets us free and He forgives us and He loves us. Indeed, a mighty act. That's awesome. He loved us so much that He entered into His creation and He submitted Himself to wicked men and He suffered the very real punishment that you deserved. He died on a real wooden cross and shed real blood all for those who would have life in Him. All who would repent and believe. And now, because of that, you belong to the age that He brought with His accomplished work. The age of the rock. The age to come. And belonging to Jesus, having your home in the age to come, you can no longer flirt with or play around with idolatry, with sinfulness, with paganism, with the wickedness of this age. That's not who you are. It's not who you are. Believe Him. Believe His Word when it tells you this. See who you are. United to Jesus. Cleansed. right? Washed. Sanctified. Justified. See who you are. Now be who you are. That is the call. That is the call of Scripture on your life, brothers and sisters. And as you descend back from the mountain, from Mount Zion spiritual and you descend and you return into your pilgrim life may you indeed reflect on these things meditate and reflect upon these glorious truths and as you do may you reflect them in your lives throughout this week and may you reflect the love of christ to the world all around you and may you be strengthened by the knowledge of god's love 
for you and the presence of His Spirit in your life. And may you be to others that sweet aroma of the world to come. Indeed, even the aroma of our tender but wonderful and powerful King, Jesus Christ. Amen.